0: This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the
1: inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast. My name is Joe Thomas. I'm the Everton FC correspondent for The Echo. and Alongside me today, we've got my colleague, Chris Beasley. And we've also got a special guest, Steve Dickinson, whose book, the unofficial Everton timeline. An overview of the Mishiri years is out now, and which we'll be discussing later in the show. But there's only one place to start. That is, of course, at the Amex on Saturday night. Chris, it was a very long drive back, yeah. wasn't it? And it was one that... Um, would have been much happier drive, I think, had the game finished in the 94th minute.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a curious game in many ways, wasn't it? As uh, as you'd expect, Brighton, Hove Albion dominated the possession. We both made the observation first half. It felt like one-way way traffic. But ultimately, Evan um, had probably the two best opportunities in, in that first half, despite all that Brighton domination. The enforced change early in the second half, Amadou and Arna came on sort of Changed the way Everton were operating in, in the middle of the park there. And then uh, classic Everton of late set piece. John Pickford knocks it up there. And I mean, what, what a finish. Jared Bramphway, I mean, he's sort of, we'll come on to this. He's sort of showing those um, goal-shy strikers how to do it in terms of the the composure that he showed. And then Everton just couldn't cling on, would really. he? The board went up nine minutes. I think everyone has said that seemed to be a higher number than what everyone was expecting. But he had a um, big Lewis dunk at, at the back post, 10-man Brighton, it must be said as well by that point. Mm-hmm. Evan just couldn't finish the job off. I mean, I suppose Brighton would feel that they they deserved the point for their efforts from the contest. But when you're that close to, to, to getting the victory, you know, it really hurt for Evertonians that one.
0: Yeah, it's a really difficult one to kind of analyse, obviously yeah. a, a real feeling of frustration at the end of the game. And I... I I sympathise with a lot of supporters who I saw in my time, I I feel the same way in this. And it felt like for the second time in a week, it was was certainly a big missed opportunity. And it was a draw that felt a bit like a defeat when you look at that Palace game. Obviously, I know Everton scored late in that, but they were a very vulnerable side at that point. And for a team yeah. that needs to find a win like Everton do at the moment, that, that was a missed opportunity. And mm-hmm. Brighton... It's difficult because I think that going into that game, I would have taken a point. Yeah. And at halftime, I certainly would have taken a point. I think Brighton were by far the better team in the first half. They, all right, they perhaps didn't create many clear-cut chances, but they got very close a number of occasions. They played through Everton quite easily. Yeah. Danny Welbeck had two big opportunities in the box and they didn't quite develop into Jordan Pickford saves because yeah. of last-ditch tackles by Tarkovsky and Ben Godfrey. And Simon Odinger, we saw him before the game, come on with yeah. his Africa Cup of Nations winner's medal. You know, he was, he was excellent in that game. Yeah. And in that first half, in particular, it was a real, real threat. But obviously, it gets half halftime at 0-0, second half different kettle of fish really game became a little bit more frantic and that that helped Evans. i think ryan's right. cohesion disappeared and all of a sudden it became more even it certainly felt 65 minutes in the game could go either way yeah. obviously it looked like it was going to go evans it was some finish by Jack Brown, it, wasn't it
1: yeah yeah i mean that, that's the thing we, we talk about um is he even a left-footed center half he, he claims that uh, he's actually you know is two-footed he i think he started off on the right but um yeah, it's just I was talking to Michael Ball earlier about his column, and for him, it was the way he, he sort of set himself for that. For, for you know, Michael, given his inside view as a former pro himself, he was just impressed how he, he got that space from um, to actually make, put that fi- finish away. I mean, it it is it's disappointing because he deserved, you know, he deserved. It was a goal that deserved to to win a game, I think. Forever, and the, I think the frustration comes like the bigger picture. Like you know, you say we take it in isolation, decent point decent performance in the circumstances, you know, albeit against, you know, a very good football in Brighton team. But it's the fact that Everton have gone over two months without Premier League win now and it sort of feels like again that like you say that phrase that, miss, that missed opportunity and getting so close to that giving to the 95th minute and you're still ahead against 10 men and then having that snatched away from you I mean, these these things can happen I mean I think of a, lot, a lot of people have a lot of heads have fallen off uh, over this and the, the manner of how oh, Brighton came back but it, I mean unfortunately it's one of those things Everton snatched a point in similar circumstances against Tottenham a couple of weeks ago and you know what comes around goes around sometimes
0: yeah, I spoke to Jared Brantway outside the dressing room after the game. It was clear that inside the dressing room, it was a real feeling of disappointment, the way in which they they lost that you know, those two points in the end. But it's quite interesting as well, speaking to him about his finish. I mean, it was an excellent finish, Steve. It seemed to be quite an instinctive one from him. He, he said he didn't really think about it. He, the ball just came mm. and he hit it. But... I mean what a finish it was and you know, if only our strikers could find that mm-hmm. of three and six. Well, I think I think it feels very much at a minute like uh Jared Branthwaite. Well, that's two goals in a couple of weeks for him. It feels like he might be taking his uh, taking his lead from, from Michael Keane perhaps rather than
2: Calvert Lewin or well, better. Well if only we had three Jared Branthwaites in the team at the mm-hmm. moment, one at the back, one in midfield <laughs> and one up front. Yeah. I think we'd be world beaters. <laughs> uh, it was interesting watching uh, John Stones playing for City this weekend and I think he appeared up in on the, the right wing and laid a ball across f- into the six yard box, got him deep and Branthwaite is very much following I think in that John Stones mould, an accomplished all-rounder, uh, clearly he's going to go far, hopefully he'll stay with us for quite a bit longer but we'll have to see about that
0: feels very much that way doesn't it like he's I mean he must be pushing close for the uh, England senior team now Gareth Southgate Mm -hmm. was there when they played Chelsea one of his Mm -hmm. probably one of his best performances of the season back in in that run it feels so long ago when everyone won four in a row and everything was far far happier than it than it it feels now but you know especially with some of those players that perhaps above him in the pecking order out injured at the minute I mean we've got international fixtures coming up in March and You would think that he must be somewhere on his radar. Obviously, it's a remarkable rise, a very quick rise this season. But yeah, I think luckily for Everton, obviously they're the ones who are experiencing the benefit of that. And yeah, I think he's got a good team around him. And again, speaking to him about where he thinks his development is at after the game for a piece of wrote this morning. Yeah, it's clear that he's got his head screwed on, and that's that's really helpful. Chris, Mm -hmm. we know how the goal came about. Before that, we had the red card. Um, and I think obviously this feels, this this adds to sort of the weight of frustration. I think it wasn't just a case that Everton were one lap going into stoppage time. They were one lap against 10 men. Yeah. I don't think we could have any doubt about the red card. I'm sure Billy Gilmore didn't mean it, but clearly, you know, we mistimed his tackle and it was just absolutely, it was quite interesting at the end of the game where we were sat, yeah. we were sat on the end of the, the press seats and as ever you're in the home end and all the phone fans are walking out and they're all going to us. Was it really a red? Was it really a red? And we were all like, yeah, I don't think there's much doubt about this much, 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 much to their shock. But luckily I think the lucky thing is Amadou Inanna wasn't seriously injured in that vehicle. Yeah. And, and obviously he made it to the end of the game and again, saw him you know, walking around the stadium. He was giving his shirt to, to one of the Brighton players outside the dressing room. So he didn't seem to be limping or anything like that. Right. So that's, at least a, a positive sign. But obviously that red card, you're then in a situation where 10 minutes go, plus obviously the nine minutes of stoppage time. At that point, you would really hope that Everton would would hold on to it. Chris, the manner in which Everton played after that has, has yeah. probably been the biggest talking point after this game, because despite obviously having the Ed man advantage and the goal advantage, one thing Everton didn't really seem to do was perhaps assert himself higher up the pitch. It was yeah. very much a case of falling back and whether by design or, or, or yeah. not, they conceded possession and invited the pressure onto them from a Brighton side that were looking for an equaliser. When you look back on, on those those last 15 minutes now, do you think that that was wrong? Or do you think that, you know, that was actually Dykes trying to play to Everton's strengths and in the end, it just didn't quite work out.
1: Yeah. A lot of people have been talking about this. I mean, listen, at the end, at the end of the day, um, even the greatest ever Everton team in 1985, they'd lost an FA Cup final to ten-man Manchester United. It can happen. You can get galvanised, happens to the best of them. And I think that um, people have obviously rightly debated were Everton deliberately sitting back, or was it? you know, got to give you know Brighton the, the, the credit as, as well. You know the way that they they're able to move the football about. It might not have been a deliberate tactic by Everton. They might have just been forced back. I mean, you can look at the substitution. Abdulai Decore going off. Um, he's as a sort of player can get the, the ball up the field, but then of course he's just come back from mm-hmm. uh, an injury, which has uh, has kept him out f- f- for many weeks. So Dean Sean and I think that you know somebody like Ashley Young, a tried and trusted figure for him, who can c- come on and um, sh- shore things up? I mean, I mean, what? Evan should he s- stick or twist? I've heard people debating this, and almost like tied themselves in knots. On the one hand, saying Evan should have tried to keep on the front foot. On the other hand. Bring another centre back on. I mean, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you you don't. I think the one thing about this Everton team, you know, that as Everton teams go, they're certainly not up there. You know, they're, they're a big improvement on last season, but you know, this isn't a a great Everton side. But what what they can do is they can protect the lead once they do get their noses in front, and it is something they look relatively comfortable at doing a lot of the time. Just wasn't able to to quite get it over the finish line in this time, and that, I think that's that's the frustration, isn't it? Because it, it continues the winless run, but. And, you know, if you consider the 95th minute equaliser, it, 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 it's going to hurt. But I think it's more of that. It's more the culmination of mm. events. Whereas if, if the 10-point deduction wasn't there, if Everton hadn't gone so long without winning the game, you'd have you'd maybe sh- never just shrugged it away. But to sort of seeing it more as, oh, they, these things can happen.
0: Yeah, I think a sense of perspective is probably also yeah. needed on this group of players as well. Because you know, for whatever reason, and most of the reasons are ones that Deitch has inherited rather than create himself. This isn't a team that's particularly good on the ball. We know that they're as strong as when they concede possession, that's when they've had their best results this season, that's when they've looked most effective. To suddenly think that, albeit they're playing against 10 men, and obviously you, you know, you'd like to incumbent on football players that level to have a degree of ability, however, you know, good or bad they are, once they're at that stage to be able to play football it's perhaps a bit naive, I think, to think that they could suddenly start knocking the ball around yeah. the midfield, bearing in mind that's something that they just don't do yeah. at all. And really, if we think that you know, this side, their strength is protecting that box. We had a few warning signs in the, in the first half. Of the probably yeah. had eight corners they got headers on target, mainly from Lewis Dunk from the last three of those, which was a worrying sign. And perhaps maybe in something to Deitch might have looked to have brought, maybe Michael Keane have another big body in the box for those final moments. But again... The seventh side's is a mid-table side. If, yeah. for, if everything that Deitch controls is a mid-table side, it's yeah. a mid-table side from doing those things well. Mm-hmm. And really, I think that that was very much a case of it playing to its strengths by sitting deep and mm-hmm. thinking, you know what, we survived most of the second half, survived the game to that point yeah. uh, without without conceding. And actually, perhaps trying to be more ambitious on the ball... May well have been the riskier strategy, yeah. but even then, even for you know, perhaps they, whether it was deliberate or not, they invited the pressure on. See, they still did have chances, and again, again, this is probably and I don't think it's worth bearing in mind. Obviously, mm. Beto had that big chance at, at, at nil, at a one 0 up, and then yes. obviously, even at one each, year, Jack Harris had a good chance at the end. So, mm. so it's not like they completely shut up shop and, and didn't offer anything going forward, is it?
2: Not at all. I mean, the, in the fifty-sixth minute, of course, there was that marvelous volley from Decoré. Mm. Um, And It was still nil-nil at the time, but we could have easily gone ahead Mm -hmm. at that point. And yes, Beto came on, burst through the middle, blasted it over the top. And the chance from Jack Harrison towards the end was pretty well went unmentioned in in most places, Mm -hmm. but was also a good opportunity. So we we were pushing forward at the time. And, you know, it was disappointing. It was so near yet so far, but... Nevertheless, I thought that the overall performance was was very solid. And actually, I thought they played one of their better games than I've seen them play this season. But for sure, we can't pass the ball, uh, apart from around the back four, more than two or three times without giving it to the opposition. And that's a big weakness. What did you make of Beto's cameo? The Royal Blue Podcast from
1: the Liverpool Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool
0: Echo. Because I think up until the final stages when it looked like it was going to finish one-nil, I thought it was relatively positive. Mm. I thought he came on. He certainly caused Brighton new problems. Um he occupied the defenders a lot better. You know, I think Dominic Calvert had been isolated for much mm. of that game and, and and struggled a bit as a result. Better was getting into channels a bit more. He drew that foul from from Van Heck that got um that got him booked. Yes. Uh, and also Obviously, he missed the chance, but he did get it in the first Mm. place. Mm. Uh, And that is at least a positive. Obviously, again, the finish is a problem. The fact that strikers haven't scored for so long mm. is a problem and that needs to be addressed. And I think also, I mean, there were two unfortunate moments for Beto. Obviously, you have that, the, the miss, which, which which didn't look good. And then also, I mean, his closing down of Pascal Gross for, for what was ultimately the equaliser. Look, you know, he's a he's a striker. It's not his forte, but he got turned twice, and that that didn't look good. Um, but we're getting to a point now where, where Dominic Cavalier has gone a long time without scoring. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Deitch interprets that 20-minute performance from Beto. Does he look at the positives? Does he look at the way in which he occupied the defence or problems that he caused? Or does he look at perhaps some of those issues that we've just discussed there? Because obviously, going into the West Ham game, that is probably one of the big questions for him. I think obviously the, the... the main, the, the main two are probably Beto or Dominic Cowell-Lewin and, and who he starts in centre midfield. And obviously we saw Amadou Nana come off the bench again this time round. That might be a decision that's made for him, depending on where how Idrissa Gray's uh, groin injury settles down. Where, where does your head lie on Beto?
2: I I think Deitch needs to start doing a few things a little bit different, particularly in the home games. We're, we're mm-hmm. so predictable mm-hmm. and... It, it, it's easy to uh, for the opposition to think about what our tactics might be and to counter them well mm-hmm. in advance. So I, I'd be more than happy to see him try nothing too radical, but why not put better on for the first half mm-hmm. and see how that goes. Lewis Dobbin, another one wasn't in the squad at the yep. weekend. Don't know whether he'd taken or not yeah, injured, injured, but would love to see him coming on and, just giving the opposition something different to think about.
0: It's a really interesting point, actually, about predictability, because one thing that Deitch is very good at, and it's from a defensive perspective, is making other, is forcing other teams to play in a very predictable way around him. He's very good at kind of sacking bodies in the middle, getting the force out wide, put balls into the box, which the likes of Tarkovsky and Bradford can deal with quite well. But obviously at the other end, that's where the issue is. And, and one thing that I think, you know, Perhaps we could say finishing this issue that might just be down to confidence at the minute. One thing that Beto certainly does bring is, it's a degree of unpredictability. It's a bit like th- mm. the core is a bit like that as yeah. well. as the almost his strength isn't in any technical ability. Yeah. It's, it's his, it's his physical ability, his fitness, his energy, his enthusiasm, and also that, that unpredictability that he has around the box. I mean, you know, Steve mentioned it there. I mean, it was, it was a great finish. It was a brilliant play from Don, um, from Dwight McNeil's chase what was a lost course. I was surprised yeah. that he got to that ball and then to fashion across. I think he was aiming for Dominic Calvert-Lewin rather than, and the ball sailed over his head. But obviously, yeah, it was a great effort from Decorey, wasn't it? I
1: mean, it was a brilliant clear from Tariq Lampton. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, wasn't it? I mean, it's... What a goal! Lamptey, be, yeah, like... Lam- he was just right in the correct place. He's not a tall lad, is he? He went to obviously win, get the header on, but you know, he just seemed to be right. In, you know, great. Positional defending from Lampsi to be there, the, the the spot where the Corey um drove it into, um, yeah, definitely. In terms in terms of um, Beto though, I I just hope that that unpredictability can prove to be strong. Cause he seems to be in his early days when he first came, he was, you know very much an unknown quantity in this country, and he seems to have that nuisance value. Whereas now, like we say, okay, his has only been cameo appearances as opposed to starts with Calvert Loom. It's 15 games since he scored a goal. I know they're only bits and pieces off the bench. 15 games with him, 20 for Calvert Lewin, 35 in total. These aren't great numbers um, to, to look at. And um, it's interesting because see, poor old DCL seems to sort of do the donkey work for mm-hmm. 60, 70 minutes, sort of uh, getting that next to nothing out of these centre backs who are uh, uh, really, you know, he's really struggling. He's. Uh, hardly getting any chances. He's got his ball um, back to goal or he's hold, like I said, holding it up or going down the channels. And it's almost like when the defences are, t- are tiring, bring better one, and he sort of offers a, 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 di- a different um, sort of s- scope there and maybe gets the chances that poor old DCL hasn't been getting Now, uh, Not necessarily because he's better, but because the, the way the game is going on and uh, the defences are tiring. So yeah, it's, it's a, it is a, it is a conundrum because uh, they, they, they're both offering different sort of, um, threats to, to opposition defences, but neither of them are getting the chances. We've talked about, obviously, Calvert lewin being desperately disappointed, uh, disappointed in terms of having the goal chalked off at Tottenham away and then losing the one to Harrison at, at home. And you just think if one of those had gone to him, it would be different, um, for him psychologically, but yeah. Uh, it, it's a difficult situation for, 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 the, for the team that you know like I say it's, it's great that Bramford has got two and four but yeah you need more from, from the center forwards, whether it's Lewin or Beto
0: Yeah one of the things I think that's probably useful to look at from the last two games is it's important when you look at the context of Dominic Alvarez and not scoring Obviously, there's the, the goal that was short off against Spurs controversially. You know, there was the incident against Leeds, uh, as, sorry, um, the incident with Jack Harrison's goal as well, where that didn't get given to him. But also, you know, most of those two months, most of the last two months, Abdullah Dekore has not been playing there. And Abdullah DeCore is is the main reason that, is the only real reason that he doesn't get isolated normally, or certainly in the first half of the season. So if his job is there to win those knockdowns, to occupy centre-backs and create second balls for for someone to run onto when you don't have Decorey there, and yeah. that's a big problem. And I think perhaps something we can take a little, so only a little bit, but a little bit of a positive from from the last two games is Decorey has had a few chances. You know, he had that shot on the edge of the area against Crystal Palace at nil-nil. He obviously had the one at the back post, um, which he, he should have done better with, I think, mm-hmm. against Palace. And then again, it was a great effort, but you know, he, he was in a position yeah. where he was free at the back post because Calvallum was occupying someone in the middle. And maybe that we're just starting to see it's going to take a little bit of time for Takori to get fully up and running, but just glimmers, just glimmers of a little bit more of attacking threat from open play from an Evans side that hasn't scored from open play, hasn't scored a non-set piece goal for so long, but maybe there are a few little glimmers of improvement there, which might be why Calvallum and might, Dice might persevere with Calvallon for maybe one more game for West Ham. Yeah. The other big call, and there's the big call going into this game, I think we all expected Harrison to come in for Ashley Young, but Amadou Nana on the bench. Were you surprised by that, Chris?
1: Oh, I wasn't surprised in, in terms of the way that Sean Dyche doesn't Were you make... disappointed? Um, or did you think? I could see... I, I wouldn't say... I, would, I think disappointed would be too strong because the, the, the various players' um, strengths and weaknesses certainly wasn't surprising mm-hmm. that Dyche seems to do the minimal changes as as possible. And as much as, uh, Manan had obviously, he'd secured that point for Palace. Also, he'd been, he'd been part of, um, the goal at the other end when he'd only just come on and, you know, him and Branfway couldn't, couldn't get to it to cut out the, the pass that led to the goal. And then, um, ultimately, um, he sort of had that sort of performance again at Brighton and, um, and the Everton's, um, play seems to obviously change. He offers a different dynamic than a just a game when he came on and that coincided with the improvement in the way Everton were playing. But then um, he, he's, a, um, he's the one at, at the back post uh, or supposed to be with, with Lewis Dunk for the equaliser. So that's two in two games that have gone in at the other end and sort of uh, Anan has been there or thereabouts and I think that Dyke Scholes a, a great stock in players who he feels who he can, um, depend upon them. There's been a lot to debate all season about the use of Ashley Young, who's had a lot of, a lot of minutes. And uh, rightly or wrongly, he's somebody who the manager feels he can trust. And for all honours, great promise, and then we've seen that the, the positives that he brings, is still sort of moments uh, where he's, he's switched off and he's not quite on it. And that's, I guess, where, where, uh, I mean, uh, I wouldn't have played him. I explained in my, um, pre much, um, team selected that we all do. Of course, uh, I'd have gone with uh, Adrisa Gay and James Garn just because I was hoping to have a team as, as similar to the one that had gone down to Brighton last season. I was not expecting another five one, but just the way that the shape they they set up. So no, um, I um, I wasn't surprised, and I think that disappointment would be um, would be too strong. I mean, it's 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 a tough one because Anana does they didn't seem to be better when when he he's on the ball, but ultimately in the, in these tight games, I mean, he, he probably that would be the manager vindicating his decision in that a couple of goals have sort of have gone in and, so, well, he's been in close proximity.
0: Yeah, I was disappointed. I don't think there's any argument for not starting against West Ham now after the last few games. I mean, Evan have really struggled on the ball in both of them and I think he's Evan's best midfielder, centre midfielder. I think he's the most technically gifted player. Um, and I think that for all that we talk about this being a side that invites pressure and doesn't like to take a lot of possession, those limited, when you don't have the ball very often, it's very, very important what you do do with it. And I don't think there's anyone better at taking the ball under pressure. He always wants the ball. He's always looking for it. You know, he's someone that can get up and down the pitch as well. You know, I, I think really probably the time is this might be a decision that's taken out of just Sand, depending on Idris mm-hmm. on injury. I would really hope to see him in that side against West Ham, particularly as we've had two games where you know against Crystal Palace I think that was a real opportunity Evan failed to assert themselves in that game and end up with quite fortunate to come away with a point and again against Brighton you know I think for the first half in particular Evan struggled really in the middle you know the, the, the worrying thing for me in the first half against Brighton was that Adringer posed so much of a threat out wide yeah. but Danny Welbeck had so much freedom him and Evan Ferguson dropping a bit deeper you know Brighton were overloading um, Evan and, and the, just in front of their own defence and Evan were really struggling to cope with it now the dust has settled after that game i'll go to you first steve obviously perspective is a big thing now we understand why people will be frustrated we're all frustrated it was Mm -hmm. again coming out of the 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 amex the other day was it did feel like two points lost it felt like two points lost for the second time in a week but when you look at the the broader perspective of of where everton are how they're performing and you have to take in both The points tell you that they would have about the deduction, which case they're mid-table and probably reflect on this week far differently. But obviously that's also not the reality for this current, you know, they are in a relegation battle as it stands. Are you looking, how are you, how are you looking at Everton right now? Are you looking at them as the team that's got nine league games without a win? You know, worst run in 30 odd years from that perspective. You know, Lampard, it was eight before, before he um, ended up losing his job. Are you looking at it from that perspective and you're getting really concerned or are you perhaps flipping that round and going, well, you know, no win in nine, but they've only lost four of them. I think six of those games being been against teams in European positions at the moment. And obviously they've only lost one of their last six in the Premier League as well. So it's very much a case of you can make it out, you can, the stats can provide the foundation for an argument for either Mm -hmm. position. Where where are you at the moment?
2: I look at it that everton are in a very precarious situation but in the broader sense uh we're a club with 500 million or so in external debt mm. we're a club that's uh the where the existing owner has seemingly lost interest in the club back in september um and the saga about who will take over the club 777 seems never ending mm-hmm. We're waiting, obviously, on the appeal of the 10-point sanction, and we've got another independent commission around the corner. So there's a lot to be concerned about with the club. However, I believe that Sean Dyche is a tremendous leader. Mm -hmm. And given the vacuum that's been created by the lack of a board this year, I think he's done a fantastic job in stepping in and being the voice of the club and in advocating and and practicing um this alignment that he talks about so much you know that we have to face it the club not long ago was a very dysfunctional club uh frank lampard did an interview a a a few weeks ago where he he talked about his time in the club and having after he'd finished training and gone back to his hotel um having to make three calls every night one to farad mashiri One to Bill Kenwright and one to Denise Barrett-Baxendale, the CEO, not one call where everybody came together and they discussed the events of the day, but three separate calls. I've worked in business for 40 years. I've never worked in an organization as dysfunctional as that. So for taking that backdrop, I think Deitch has done a fantastic job in bringing the club together and yeah, his football isn't the most exciting, but right now I feel he's the right man for the club. Mm-hmm. And he's done a lot to improve the, the performance of the squad he inherited. He's had no money to spend. Uh, we've lost some players along the way as well. And so, uh, I yeah, I I would like to see stability for a while. You know, we've been turning around managers on average once every 18 months for the last eight years. Um, I, I really hope we get some stability. Mm-hmm. And there will come a time when Sean Deitch perhaps is, hands over the reins to somebody else, but I, I hope that's not any time soon.
0: Mm. Chris, yeah, I put the question to you. Mm-hmm. Which, you look at the the two different contexts in which Everton are operating in the league table at the minute. There's the one where they, if they've got the eight wins and the seven draws and really they're in a position where... They probably, I think, without the deduction, would be thinking, "Well, that's four points missed out on what would be you know, could have launched them into the top half of the table." Maybe yeah. instead, obviously, we have got the points deduction for time being, and Everton are a side that are just outside the relegation zone. Does that change anything for you?
1: Um, yes, it, 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 it certainly does, doesn't it? Because um, as Steve put so eloquently, um, there are very two different. Um, Realities there for, for Everton. Sorry, yeah, two scenarios in that the, the the on the field position and the actual league the league placing. bit because of that, and there's so many um, variables, and um, yeah, it it does change it all. Because like I said again, I go back to that point. It, it, if you take that result, that performance in isolation. It's it's not so bad as as much as it hurts to concede the last gasp equaliser, but because of the situation, because of where they are, they just, because it's over two months of, without a win now, they they do need to just get back to winning ways. It's as simple as that. But um, what I take encouragement from is that it's very seldom that. They're not competitive. They're not in games. Obviously, we were there that awful day just before turn of the year at Molyneux when they really weren't at the races, And Sean Dyke said at the time. It's the first time they've been like that since Villa away, uh, like the second week of the season. There is an improved level of consistency in there and they've been unfortunate at times not to, not to have won during this particular um, tough run. Um hugely disappointed at Crystal Palace game. We we all felt that was a missed opportunity and probably as bad as we've seen performance wise for a for a long, long time. But they were I, I felt they'd be alright at Brighton and and they and then they were um I've said they, the game ebbed and flowed and um, there were points where they were they were on the back foot for a long time but they still have that consistency about them. There's a level of performance which is much higher now than it was you know, before Sean da- Sean Dyche came in.
0: Yeah, I think another thing that's also important to think about within that run is the times when they've shown the resilience to come back within yeah. games to get results obviously. A you know, late equaliser against Tottenham Hotspur, late equaliser mm-hmm. against Crystal Palace and, yeah. and really as, as worrying as that table looks and look I, you know, Dyche talks about controlling the controllables. He doesn't know what the situation is going to be with points deductions at the end of the season but what he does know is the more points that he has the more protection Everton have from external factors, dragging them down that table. Everton need to start winning games. And I, think that's, and I think that is one of the issues at the minute where the frustration lies from. The longer they go without winning games, the more it feels like points back from the appeal are a necessity rather than a hope. Yeah, because if they can't get those points on the pitch then they need to find another way to get them. And, and we start clinging on to that. And we need to kind of avoid a situation where we're doing that. We hope for points back. I think we'd all be a little bit surprised if we didn't get some points back. But ultimately, we don't know what the situation's going to be. And we also don't know what the, 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 the knock-on effect will be for, for the second case uh, as well. But really, for, for me, the barometer is that if you look, you know, this is a side that has been in two really, really destructive relegation battles over the last two years. And if you compare this Everton side, this Deitch Everton to the one that was there when he just took over this time last year, or the one that Lampard took over the year before, they're very, very, very different beasts. And I think that you you see that within obviously what you mentioned there about them always being in games. You mentioned what I just saying there about the fact that obviously they come back, they've, they've shown the resilience to come back and get some positive results from difficult situations in games. Yeah, they do feel like a, 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 a different side. I I don't think there's an argument that you can use I don't I don't think there's a, a position from which you can say that progress hasn't been made under Deitch. I think that we can all express frustration that this is the medicine that we need to take at the minute for you know obviously the instability for you know which we'll obviously get onto with your book Steve but you also have referred to there the the current instability around the club but also the instability that's caused this you know, the dysfunction that's caused this as well I think that it's legitimate for people to kind of have concerns over the manner of some of the performances but again when you look at Deitch, you look at the, the performances that he's getting and the results that he's getting from this group of players. It is a Fred Bear squad. It's a squad that, in these last two months, again has played so many sides that are so better equipped for him. We can argue that you know, we can, argue, and we've spoken long and hard. And, and obviously, you've written a book about some of this about. How it's a shame that Everton are in a position where they're going into games against the likes of Brighton or even Spurs and, and Villa, where they're so much the underdogs. But that is the situation that Dijas inherited and that's the one that he's got to operate in. And when you look at that, you know, you look at say the nature of the squad, the injuries that he's had over the past few years, and to Fulham and to Fulham, they had one fit senior centre midfielder. Mm-hmm. You know, like, do I like watching some of this football? No, you know, do I like coming away from from you know from a three hundred mile trip, you know, or six seven hundred mile round trip with, with having conceded a ninety fifth minute equaliser? No, but I do prefer this situation to leaving the Brighton home game twelve months ago losing four yeah. one. Probably come on to this in a little bit. Leaving that Newcastle home game having mm. lost four one, that Southampton game having lost two one, that Wolves game having lost two one. You know, the it is a different scenario and. Obviously, I think at the minute, we all, we're all concerned, we're all legitimately concerned for justified reasons. But the minute, now probably isn't the time to be arguing around the merits of Deitch or Deitch Ball. Ideally, this is an argument when we start to get to the decisions that he's making in relation to holding on to the to, 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 to three points or trying to the other day, or the tactics, that were say, deployed against Crystal Palace, where we were all disappointed and I think Deitch got that one wrong. That's probably an argument, a conversation to have whenever they're a consolidated mid-table side that are safe in the knowledge that they're getting these results to avoid relegation battle season in season out, and they're perhaps looking to push into the top half consistently and compete for European football. That's when you perhaps have that debate, as opposed to now. It's pragmatic. We'd all rather wish that wasn't the reality. That's probably where we are. Do you think that's fair, Chris? The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool
1: Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such a um, it's such a state of flux at, at the moment in terms of um, where the, the points deduction appeal goes, and then that shapes the, 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 the second one. Yeah, they're, they're in such a, a mess when he came in. I, I, I stand by this. I think he is uh, the most suitable choice of Everton manager since David Moyes was appointed over uh, coming up to 22 years ago now in terms of what what the club needed at that particular point as Steve's already mentioned there been through uh, eight managers in eight years under Farhad Mashiri, that sort of churn it's just destructive and uh, just needed to give him the, the time to uh, to implement his methods. We've already seen significant improvements on the fitch, at least uh, in terms of uh, results and performances. Like we say, it's not always easy on the eye. It's very often not easy on the eye, but it's the best way of sort of utilising Everton's resources, uh, at the moment, and uh, I, I think he's he, he's doing a good job. But like all managers, he's ultimately judged by um, those those results. And you know, nine games now is it with Premier League games without a win. You know, it's almost quarter of a the season. It's a big old it is a big old chunk, and the it's, the longer it goes, the more you're you're saying, oh, this game's a huge one now because it, it just should get bigger and bigger until you you win that. But yeah, I think overall, and also as Steve says, in terms of him being a leader at a club where they I won't say a rudderless ship but obviously there's a lot of interim um, sort of appointments there waiting for triple seven yay or nay and all that comes with that you know we, it was something Malky Mackay um, who actually gave Deitch his, his first um, coaching position at Watford. He said to me, "I spoke to Malky when uh, Dietrich was appointed, and he says I think he will be a great ambassador for the club. Mm. He's much more than a head coach. He, he, you know, represent the club in in a certain way. And I think that is that's proven to be the point, to be the case.
0: See, we would." We- Perhaps laid the foundation quite nicely, mm-hmm. I think, for, <laughs> to, to to move on to to move on onto your book. Mm-hmm. I think we'll we'll step away from Brighton mm-hmm. for the time being. Obviously later in the week we'll we'll focus on West Ham and yeah, we may well be talking, having had some sort of <laughs> you know, developments on perhaps either the takeover, but probably more likely the, the 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 points appeal. Obviously you put this book together with Lyndon Lloyd, the unofficial eleven years, uh time, unofficial eleven timeline. You focus on the period two thousand four into two thousand twenty three, the Mashiri years. Just talk a bit to us about the genesis of the book. Where did the idea come from? At what point did you think that this was something that you wanted to to kind of delve into? It's a, an unhappy period. I think oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: I'll give you a very specific answer to that. It was on the M sixty two when I was driving back home on the twenty seventh of April twenty twenty three, which now seems a lifetime ago, but my head was metaphorically in my hands. My hands were on the steering wheel, but my head was metaphorically in my hands after the 4-1 home defeat yeah. against Newcastle. And it felt like a particular low. And, and I was sort of racking my brain and thinking, how has it come to this? And I had in mind, because I, I've uh, been a writer for a while now, and I had in mind to write an article about the Machiri years. Yeah, And it turned out that, in addition to uh, the Liverpool Echo Archives, one great source of information was the toffee web news archives toffee web of course the website that most Evertonians will follow most weeks and i was trying to put together a chronological uh, sequence of what had actually happened on and off the field. Mm-hmm. And because my because Lyndon Lloyd is very much the, the driving force and the chief writer behind Toffee Web, I spoke to Lyndon and we agreed that we would write a book. We both felt that it was time to put the record straight about events that had gone on over the last years, where Everton, the club, and the supporters as well, had had a lot of bad press, a lot of negative vibes. And much of that, misinformed uh, was coming through the national media. So we decided that we would put together uh, a record of what had happened. We started in 2014 because that was when um, Bill Kenwright reportedly met Farad Mashiri for the first time. And we came onto the theme of the unofficial Everton timeline, because of course, as we know, on three sides of the ground, the official Everton timeline... Mm -hmm. Uh, which was uh, an extract from the Everton collection and uh, from a lot of wonderful memorabilia collected over the years by uh, Dr. David France and others. And David France was kind enough to write the That's foreword for the book. And we we noticed that the official Everton timeline mysteriously stopped in 2014 with the celebration of the signing of Romelu Lukaku, and nothing had been recorded. There was a fourth side, the park end, to the ground, but nothing had been recorded since, coincidentally, Farag Mashiri had come onto mm. the scene. So we thought that that might make an interesting theme for the book. And we, um, yeah, set out in trying to produce a detailed history of what had gone on, on and off the field, uh, the good times and the bad times. And there've been plenty of those in the last years. And uh, that's how we, we came up with the book.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that
2: Newcastle game. I
0: mean, I think that was seeded into my memory. I remember yeah, you talk about being on the M62 and the thoughts going free. I remember driving back and, um, I just had to stop at a McDonald's car park at one point. I remember just getting a cup of tea from one of the twenty-four hour mm-hmm. ones, and and, and in, in North Liverpool, and just being being sat there, and just I think it had gone midnight. Cause obviously, it takes a couple of hours with the post-match stuff for us, doesn't it, Chris? And mm-hmm. just trying to make head nor tail of what was yeah. going on because I think for for a lot for a lot of us, or for me at that point, that was probably the that was probably the closest I thought to thinking that relegation was something that could happen, could mm-hmm. genuinely happen after that game. I mean, can you remember it, Chris?
1: Yeah, definitely. I can see why uh, Steve, for all the wrong reasons, was inspired to pick that as, as his moment. That was the moment I felt like um, a lot of people got Everton's best interests at heart, that that was the moment that they were going to go. They'd had the revival under Sean Dyche, and then that night, it's because the, the crowd um, gave so much that night. Mm. I mean, um, I was uh, against Wimbledon 94, Coventry City 1998, and Anything produced on those two memorable occasions, it was almost like, in many respects, more than this. And this night, the Newcastle game turns it—the fireworks and the, just the the primeval roar and the, the, the crowd who'd sort of got them over the line um, the year before, and the Frank Lampard—you know—they'd given everything. But ultimately, the games won and lost on the pitch and Everton's players were just well beaten on that night. We talked about the way that Deitch has got them resolute and improved them that night. Newcastle ran them ragged. And yeah, that was the night I think a lot of people feared, both ourselves and colleagues and other fans, that, um, that, that there was a feeling that Everton were going to uh, end up in the championship after that one. So I can see where Steve was inspired for all the wrong reasons to uh, to um, embark on his book project after that particular night.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody who's listened to this will need a reminder of the trajectory of the club mm-hmm. over over this period when you were writing this how cathartic was it for you <laughs> or was it not cathartic <laughs> at all bearing in mind that we're not a position yet really where we, we we have a happy ending to some of the problems that
2: were created within this period it, writing the book and relieved a lot of stress yeah
0: i can imagine <laughs> like
2: <laughs> um it was it, it' very interesting to record and look back, and of course we we think we've remembered everything, but over a ten year period, nine year period, we've forgotten a lot.
0: What was I, the uh, what was the biggest event or incident that you'd forgotten? What was you know what was what's the thing that you came across? You think, oh, that was significant, but given what has happened at this club in this period, and there's so many second ad- events that drifted out of your consciousness.
2: I, I think it was the. the the speed of the highs and the lows Mm. that not, you know, we, we, we know there've been eight managers. We know there've been, I think several interim managers as well. And three directors of football in that period, but they came and they went so quickly and researching it. You look back on the anticipation of the new arriving and all of the media speculation. And then the selection process comes down to one or two and the new manager is appointed. But so quickly in the timeline, there were then the official club announcements saying that they'd been dismissed, they'd Mm -hmm. left for whatever reason. And that just happened so often. And that creates such a lot of instability Mm. in the club. I'm sure there were good motives um, uh, in the outset, And I strongly believe Farad Mashiri had the best of intentions when he arrived at the club in 2016. But looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, there were some assumptions he must have made in preparing his business plan, which just did not stand up well Mm. in the test of time. Mm. Um, I mean, firstly, he, he said in his public pronouncements that money would be no barrier to success. Well, Yes, it was. It always is. He mistakenly believed that he would have the sponsorship uh, support of Alicia Usmanov and USM, and that tragically came crashing down with on the 24th of February 22 when Putin invaded Ukraine. And uh, overnight, the sponsorship revenue and the expected 200 million, it said, of naming rights revenue Mm. for the new stadium just disappeared. Uh, uh, So he was dreadfully unlucky with that. I think he made assumptions in terms of the governance and the board structure, for example, that Bill Kenwright should be on the scene um, indefinitely. And yet in 2011, Bill Kenwright had said he was looking for Uh, a wealthy individual to take over the club and would be very happy to stand down when he'd found such a person Mm. Uh, and irrepressible as he was, Bill, I I think again, with the benefit of hindsight, one might think if he'd stepped down in 2016 or even 2017, after a, a period of handover, And taking a life presidency role or something like that, being the guy who knew it all, but it was at the end of the phone, rather than being the executive chairman, then that would have been good for Bill and good for the club. I think Mashiri assumed that he did not need any external non-exec directors Mm. on the board. Big mistake. Because ultimately, a board needs different views, not just yes people. And when the opportunity came with the replacement of the, of Robert Elstone, the CEO, um, when Sasha Razantsev stepped down as chief finance and strategy officer, when the club felt it needed a non-exec and someone with footballing experience, all of those appointments were filled by Bill Kenwright devotees. They all had strengths. But they—they they were all. None of them were likely to say no, in light of what were clearly bad decisions being made by the club. The only people that said no ultimately were the fans.
0: Mm. When you when you look back, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, you mentioned that obviously the reason why it's called the um, unofficial timeline because. Yeah, the the time around the stadium kind of stops with Machiri. And again, it's interesting. You started that answer there by talking about the the flux in managers. And I remember doing one of the the Goodison tours or being in the bowel of Goodison last year. And it's interesting. The team photos stop around that time as well. Mm. And I think one of the reasons before that is because they got to a position where the managers were changing so frequently, it almost became a little bit farcical Mm. that, you know, with, with, with how they were, with how they were doing it. They might not kind of be able to answer this because we don't quite know what the final act of the Mashiri years are going to be yet. But when you, obviously you've, you've had a great deal of time assessing this at the moment. What, what do you think ultimately his legacy will be at the club?
2: Um, I, I look at two figures at the moment, two figures in my mind. When, when he arrived at the club, um, we had, Net debt, external debt of 55 million, which he very promptly paid back. Oh, it, yeah. But then took out more loans. And as things stand at the moment, and unless he suddenly comes in with a major capital injection, which is not expected, but the club has net debt of 500 million circa. So if that is his legacy, even with the magnificent new stadium, which I visited again last night. If the club changes ownership and has net debt of 500 million, that has to be dealt with by the new owners, either by a, a significant capital injection mm. or restructuring the debt, but with high interest costs as they are now, that will be a significant burden. Now, it's it's sad to give a financial answer mm. to a footballing mm. question, but, but that really lie within that lies the ability for the club to replenish the the, the squad to build on w- what Deitch has achieved now you know so much is tied up with the finances so i think the best we can hope for is that the new owners come in and they're able to provide the resources financially and managerially that the club really needs mm. if that is the case if if we get good new owners then i think perhaps with the fullness of time people will look back at the new stadium and with Mashiri's time and think well okay if we end up with bad owners people who take us into an even worse place than we are now then that will be mm. Mashiri's legacy
0: given a financial answer there or a financial focused answer it probably neatly encapsulates you know, the that timeline in general and what we've all become, because probably the, the most damning indictment of where we've got to so far is the fact that certainly over the last 18 months, at least, I think most Everton fans have gone away from yeah, <laughs> becoming experts in what's going on on the pitch to start delving into what's, you know, trying to understand what happens off the pitch and, you know, mainly financially dominated. And that really is a great shame that so much of the fun has been taken out of watching a beautiful game and, and we're all having to kind of become experts in fields that if we're honest, we'd all rather not be rather well, <laughs> than pay much attention. You know, when to... when I
2: meet up with my mates up on the top balcony before the game, um you know, we we, we tend to talk now about points deductions and appeals and <laughs> ownership discussions. And as a bit of an afterthought who's who's been selected on the team mm. today and how are we likely to do. And none of us want that. No. No. No, Steve, it's been a pleasure
0: having you in. Thanks so much for coming. Can you just, um, just one final thing can you just explain to anybody who's listening who might be
2: interested in having can get hold of your book. Yes, certainly it's available on Amazon. So just search for the unofficial Everton timeline. You'll find it on Amazon. It's available as paperback and uh, as Kindle. And we have a, uh, an audiobook version coming out in the near future. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Um,
0: uh, I'm going to wrap it up there as well. Thank you. Obviously, we, we discussed Brighton at length first and we'll be back later in the week, certainly at the end of the week, to discuss what's going on ahead of uh, West Ham and you know, potentially in the middle of the week as well, depending on what developments we have off the pitch as well. And fingers crossed that positive outcomes certainly so in relation to the points that actually appeal. But we've been a Royal Blue podcast. Thanks ever so much for listening.
2: You've been listening to the Royal Blue podcast from the Liverpool Echo.